Well, it's a joy to worship with you again this morning, and I want to uh, give another plug for this evening. We have a great opportunity to be an encouragement um, to four of our uh, folks here at Lakeside who are getting baptized, and uh, trust me, you will not uh, be disappointed in the sense that uh, these testimonies are very encouraging, very powerful, um, and uh, you need to be there tonight to hear these testimonies of God's amazing grace uh, in the lives of young and old. And I'm particularly um, moved this morning because it seems like that I can remember there's never been a group of people getting baptized that are going to be having more unsaved family members attending tonight. Um, There's husbands, there's fathers, um, there's cousins and family members who... uh, clearly don't know Christ. And uh, the people that are getting baptized are really praying that God will use their, their testimony to impact their, their parents' life, uh, their spouse's life, uh, as they hear the gospel shared through their testimony. So uh, please be praying this afternoon that God would really use our baptism tonight as a powerful witness to, to unbelievers. And uh, please come, and uh, maybe God will use you tonight to bump into one of these uh, family members, and uh, you could strike up a conversation with them and just be the light of Christ, even if you never share the gospel with them, just your life, uh, your hospitality, your kindness, your concern, your care, uh, your love uh, could be a great witness tonight. And so uh, there's a lot at stake tonight at this baptism, and so I want to encourage you to be there, and, and um, we're going to have a great, great time together. Looking forward to seeing um, how God's going to use it. Um, not only in the lives of those who are getting baptized, uh, as it has a huge step of faith and commitment uh, to Christ, but uh, also in the lives of those who will come as our visitors, our guests tonight. We'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. One of my favorite verses in all the Word of God, a verse I'm sure you're very familiar with. I imagine many of you have this verse memorized. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Paul very simply and succinctly states this, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As most of you know, our family just returned this past week from a whirlwind vacation up and down the east coast and we traveled through 10 states packed more into seven days than probably we should have but uh, considering the ages of our kids we weren't sure we'd ever get back there again to do a a trip like this it really was more of an historic tour than it was a vacation Uh, we were all exhausted and needed to go on vacation after we got back Um, but uh, it really was an amazing time together we landed in boston and immediately drove to Plymouth, where, of course, the Mayflower landed and was able to look at all that. And, but really, what, why we went there was not to see Plymouth Rock. If you've ever seen it, it's kind of pitiful. It's a little rock down in some little uh, thing. Um, don't worry, you're not missing anything, okay? But in the city of Plymouth, there's a, a lesser-known uh, historic site that very few people ever get to, and it's called the Monument to the Forefathers. Anybody ever heard of the Monument to the Forefathers? Yeah, not many. Uh, if you saw the movie Monumental by Kirk Cameron, 
uh, he highlights this monument that is really one of the coolest national monuments in our country, uh, which has been virtually forgotten by the American people. You have all these people milling around down on the coast there by Plymouth Rock and going through the Mayflower and looking at all those sites, and we were literally the only people at this other monument. And basically what it is, it's the largest granite statue uh, monument in America, and it's uh, really a blueprint for a biblical government. And uh, just an amazing thing. You can just look it up, Google it sometime, not right now, because I know you've got phones, you're not going to Google it right now. But uh, Google it later on today and, 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 and read about it. It's a fascinating, fascinating uh, monument. And we were able to stand at the foot of that and just pray, particularly for our children as they grow up in a country that is, that is off the rails from where we started, um, that they would be salt and light uh, in, this, in this country. But it was there we were able to look at this monument and it just, uh, just kind of is a, it's an amazing a monument. And then we, of course, went up to Maine. That was a real reason why I went to go see my mom and dad. They send their greetings. Um, we had a couple days up there in just rural Maine, hanging out uh, with my mom and dad in their new place where they, they summer now. And I uh, got to get a, have a reunion with my sister. I hadn't seen her for 10 years. I didn't realize it was that long. And so we had a sweet time up there. And just uh, the, all the sights and the smells and the sounds just brought back my childhood growing up in rural New England. And uh, a great time, and then we jumped in the car and headed down towards Lexington, Concord, where, of course, the American Revolution began, and uh, we stood on the very green, Lexington Green, where they, uh, the shot, first shot rang out, the shot heard around the world, and, of course, Zach was loving all this because he's such a war buff, and so this was really cool to, for him to see all this history, and then we went to New York City, and uh, if we never go back to New York City, I won't miss it, I promise you that. But uh, we were there to really see uh, some of the sites, in particular the Ground Zero monument was very compelling, and um, uh, some other things there. And, and then we headed down to Philadelphia uh, to see Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell. Never got to see really any of those things because it was so late by the time we got there at night. And then headed down to Washington, D.C., where, of course, we got to go down to the National Mall and see all the monuments. And, and uh, that was just kind of on our bucket list for our kids. We always wanted to take them to the, the nation's capital and show them Washington, D.C., and so we got to do a ton of stuff, uh, saw, saw the um, Smithsonian Museums and the Holocaust Museum, Ford's Theater, where Lincoln was shot. That was a very moving uh, location, and then uh, the, the, our last site that we visited before driving to the airport was uh, Arlington National Cemetery, which was a very fitting uh, conclusion to, to our time looking at all these historic sites. And, and uh, of course, if you've ever been there, you know you've got to go see the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is just a very moving, uh, inspiring thing to observe and, and to watch, just the respect and the honor um, that our, our nation's military has towards those who have fallen in war and uh, given their lives for our freedom. And so, um, I appreciated our son. Uh, he took his final picture there uh, that he was posting on Facebook, and it was a beautiful, picturesque view of all these gravestones, headstones, white across the green grass, and just wrote the little, you know, just simple tag, thank you. And uh, it just seemed to be the fitting response to just uh, uh, viewing all this amazing history uh, of our country, and uh, most of it involving war. Uh, that uh, has, has happened to, in many ways to uh, allow us to sit here today and to worship the Lord freely, and we're very grateful for that. Well, 
For me personally, there was an even more moving and inspiring experience at another cemetery off the beaten path that most people will never visit or even know to visit. Uh, Princeton, New Jersey sits about halfway between New York City and Philadelphia and uh, obviously is the home of Princeton University, which used to be called Princeton College back in the day. What most people don't realize is, is this prestigious Ivy League school was originally founded before the American Revolution by Presbyterians, by the Presbyterian Church, many of whom came from Scotland, the, the Scottish Presbyterians, uh, and it was started as a Reformed Evangelical Seminary. Uh, that the goal was to train ministers who would proclaim the gospel throughout the New England colonies. And so nestled in this quaint college town of Princeton is, is this old cemetery that's referred to as the Westminster Abbey of the United States. And if you know about the Westminster Abbey in England, it's where many of the divines, the notable Puritans are buried there in Westminster Abbey. Well, they call this the Westminster Abbey of the United States because of all the notable uh, people who are buried there. And so our family arrived there about dusk when the shadows were beginning to, to fall on the gravestones. And we got out of the car and we walked to a special section in that uh, cemetery where they honored those who served as presidents uh, of, of the college, of Princeton College. That's where they were all buried. And we were specifically searching for the grave of the third president. Anybody know who that was? Jonathan Edwards. And uh, who arguably is the greatest theologian in the history of America. And uh, we found it. And I think we got a picture here that Hannah took. That's Jonathan Edwards' tomb. And in fact, we, we were looking for Sarah Edwards, who obviously is his wife. Um, my wife was interested in that. And we were walking around looking for her grave. We couldn't find it. And then we walk around the backside. This is the backside of, of the tomb. And guess what? There she is, buried with him. And we didn't realize that. And, and for you ladies, just because I thought this is, was very um, touching what her epitaph was. And ladies, this is something for you to aspire to. Um, as I aspire to be like Jonathan Edwards, you can aspire to be like Sarah Edwards. This is what her, her epitaph was. You ready for this? Sarah, wife of the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, born January 9, 1709, married July 20th, 1727, died October 2nd, 1758. And here it is. A sincere friend, a courteous and obliging neighbor, a judiciously indulgent mother, an affectionate and prudent wife, and a very eminent Christian. I thought that was a touching uh, reminder. But um, anyway, that was, uh, for me, the highlight to be able to sit by the grave of one of my spiritual heroes. And uh, Jonathan Edwards is, is one that God has used uh, really profoundly to impact and influence who I am, how I think, what I believe, how I live. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. I think that's a biblical mandate for having heroes. Remembering those who led you, who spoke the word of God, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. That we all should have spiritual heroes, people that we look to, 
to, to set an example for us, to, to imitate in our lives. And Jonathan Edwards is one of those for me. In fact, Edwards uh, wrote an introduction to uh, his most well-known book. I believe it, it was a book not even about him or that he wrote. It wasn't a book he wrote. His most well-known or most published work is called The Life and Diary of David Brainerd who was a passionate missionary to the American Indians who was engaged to his daughter Jerusha, and they were to be married, and he uh, contracted tuberculosis at, I think, 28 or 29 years old and died before the wedding took place. And so here was his uh, potential son-in-law. Jonathan was extremely impressed with this young man and just his passion and zeal, and he asked him before he died, when he was on his deathbed in his home, he, he died in Edward's home, he asked if he, for permission to print his diary, uh, and, and it was really more of a prayer journal than anything else. And so uh, Brainerd reluctantly agreed, and I think Edwards never realized how popular that uh, diary would become. But this is what he stated in that introduction to the life and diary of David Brainerd. He said this, that God has two ways of presenting true religion and challenging us to live it out. There's doctrine, and then there's example. And so throughout the history of the church, God has raised up powerful preachers to teach us the Word of God, but He's also raised up powerful examples to show us how to live out what is taught in the Word of God. And Edwards considered Brainerd to be one of those powerful examples, and that his life was worthy of imitation. Well, I would say this, that Edwards himself was also a powerful example whose life is worthy of imitation. And whenever I think of Jonathan Edwards, I can't help but think about the 70 resolutions that he made uh, as a young man soon after he came to Christ. By the way, if, if you really want to Google something, Google Edwards' 70 resolutions. Uh, if you've never looked at those, those are very uh, encouraging, very challenging uh, to, to read through. Um, and it's amazing to think about, he wrote those when he was maybe 18, 19 years old. He'd only been saved for a year, um, and yet he crafted these 70 statements that were an expression of the primary purpose and, and preeminent pursuit of his life, namely, that God would be glorified in every area of his life. A few years back, I was able to... Uh, read a great little biography on Edward's life written by Steve Lawson entitled The Unwavering Resolve of Jonathan Edwards. And I was deeply stirred by Lawson's compelling description of, this, uh, of what drove this 18th century pastor and theologian. This is how Lawson stated it. He said, quote, Every cr great Christian leader has a master passion, an overruling ambition that dominates his life and drives his soul. It is that in which he most believes and which most captures his mind and inflames his heart. Such a chief aim controls him and defines his very reason for being. This supreme sense of purpose becomes a motivation so strong that it empowers him to overcome all obstacles and overrides all adversity. For Jonathan Edwards, this passion was the glory of God. And so as a baby Christian... Edward's heart was just captured by the glory of God. He became convinced from his study of God's word that God's ultimate end in everything is his glory. 
and I know that you know this, but the glory of God is the overarching theme of Scripture. You say, hey, what's the Bible about? Well, what's the Bible about? It's about the glory of God in the person of Christ. You might want to add that, right? It's the glory of God in the face of Christ, in the person of Christ. The Bible refers to God as the God of glory. Psalm 29, verse 3. God has revealed His glory. He's put His glory on display through all that He has made. Psalm 19, 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. As NASA's checking out all those pictures of Pluto, right? As their little spaceship goes by there, right? That, that's just shouting glory to God. That's all that's doing. The, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the angels in heaven are saying this. They're calling out to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the heavens are filled with the glory of God and the earth is filled with the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, no one can ever get to heaven and say, God, how can you hold me accountable? I didn't know, I had no idea you existed. How was I to know? And God will simply say, well, every morning you woke up and looked around you, that was evidence that I exist. Because I've revealed myself all of my attributes, and namely my glory, which is a summary of all of God's attributes, I revealed my glory through creation. And it's been clearly seen and understood by what I made. John Calvin famously said that the universe is a theater for God's glory. You go to a theater to watch a show, to watch a movie, to watch a play, and things are put on display, and you sit there and you take it all in. And the universe is a theater for God's glory. We're just like sitting in the theater 24-7, 365 days a year. We're just taking it all in. This is a theater for God's glory. And so as the creator and the sustainer of the universe, God deserves... To be glorified, Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Paul said in Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the, what, the glory forever, amen. And so God deserves glory, but he not only deserves glory, he demands glory from his creatures. Psalm 29, verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. We're being called out by the psalmist to give God glory and honor. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, during the tribulation, it says there will be an angel or angels uh, floating over the earth preaching the gospel. And this is what they say, fear God and give him what? Glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And so that's going to be the final gospel presentation, if you will, fear God and give Him glory. That's why we 
exists. That's why God created us. That's why we're here on planet Earth. Isaiah 43, 7. The prophet says this, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. You ever wondered why you're here on this earth? That's one of the big questions people ask. Why am I here? It's like, where did I come from? Where am I going? The biggest question is, why am I here? Why are you here? Why are you here on this planet? Very simply, to bring glory to God. The Puritans, the Reformers, understood this, and when they were uh, set out to summarize their theology, if you will, and, 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 and package it in a way that they could uh, make it easy to memorize and to teach their children, they came up with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and the very first question, it's a question and answer catechism, is, hey, let's ask our kids this question, and they'll give us this answer, and it's a way to teach them theology. And so the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and what? And enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now the problem is, we don't do that by nature, do we? We have not glorified God and we don't enjoy God. All of us by nature refuse to honor Him and we seek our enjoyment and our satisfaction in everything else but Him. That's what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 1 when he was describing the depravity of man and why God, God's wrath, his anger will be poured out upon sinful mankind someday. Very simply, he said this, for even though they knew God, based on what they had seen, his glory has been put on display in creation, yet even though they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was dark, and professing to be, to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And he went on to summarize that in Romans 3.23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the, what? Glory of God. Interesting. What, how does Paul define sin? It's falling short of the glory of God. What does that mean to fall short of the glory of God? It means not glorifying and honor God. We, we don't do that. That's, what he, that's why He created us. That's what we're called to do. We're commanded to do. And yet we don't do that. We fall short of His glory. We fail to honor and glorify God the way we're supposed to. We sinfully seek to glorify who? Ourselves. And thus rob God of the glory that belongs to Him and Him alone. You know, God's not good at sharing. That sounds negative in the way I put that. But listen, God, God does not share His glory with anyone. Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, God says, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? In other words, everything that God does is to bring glory and honor to Himself. 
You okay with that? I know that might rub you wrong. Like, well, wait a minute. I don't like that. That doesn't sound good. Everything he does is to bring glory and honor to himself. I don't like people like that. That sounds cocky. It sounds prideful. It sounds, right, that it's all about them. Well, mind you, we're not talking about you or me. We're talking about God. And uh, that's where he is so much higher than us and greater than us. And he's so infinite. We're so finite. And so while to our human ears and our mind that may sound self-serving, it is totally right. It's totally appropriate. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. And so his ultimate priority, God's ultimate priority is to glorify himself. And so he expects that the ultimate priority of everyone else and everything else that he created would be to glorify himself or glorify him as well. If that's his goal, that should be our goal. And so Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, studying the scriptures, sees that, that, that God himself made his glory his highest end. Edwards concludes very simply that bringing glory to God must be his primary purpose and his preeminent pursuit in life. Seems like a logical conclusion, doesn't it? If this is God's great goal, this needs to be my great goal. If this is God's number one passion, this needs to be my number one passion. If this is God's preeminent pursuit, this needs to be my preeminent pursuit. Again, Lawson says it this way. He said, Edwards possessed a burning commitment to God's glory that permeated everything he did, said and wrote. This became his controlling passion and consuming desire. Glorifying God became Edwards' greatest goal in life, and he pursued it with a relentless, riveting resolve. And that's why his resolutions are, are so amazing, because they're, they're just an expression of his passion and, and desire to glorify God in any, every area of his life. And, and really, the, the, these resolutions served as an instrument to govern and guide his lifelong pursuit of the glory of God. And his list of 70 commitments that he developed over the course of a year, it was 1722, 1723, somewhere in there, uh, they were a, a comprehensive strategy to deliberately and intentionally attain his ultimate goal in life, which was to glorify God. And so his habit was to read over his resolutions every week as a way to examine and evaluate his Christian walk in order to gauge his progress toward his goal of glorifying God in every thought, word, and deed. And you pick this up as you read his resolutions. For example, resolution number one, resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to the glory of God. I'm resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to the glory of God. Resolution number four, resolved never to do any manner of anything but what tends to the glory of God. I'm not going to do anything that doesn't glorify God. Resolution 27, resolve never willingly, resolve never willingly omit anything except the omission be for the glory of God. So in other words, I'm not going to do anything that's not going to glorify God, and I'm not going to not do anything that will glorify God. 
Even the most mundane areas of his life, he desired to regulate for God's glory the use of his time, how he used his time every day, what he ate, what he drank. Resolution number six, resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it to the most profitable way I possibly can. In other words, I'm resolved not to waste my life. I'm going to use every moment that God gives me to, to, to profit his kingdom and to bring him glory. How about this? Resolution 20, resolve to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. In fact, I read somewhere that uh, Jonathan Edwards, he was such an amazing mind. I mean, I read some of his stuff and I'm like, whoa, dude, could somebody translate this for me? I mean, it's like really heady stuff. I mean, the guy was a genius. And yet he would experiment with different types of foods because he spent much of his day studying and he didn't want to get drowsy. And so he was experimenting. He would try a certain food and if it made him drowsy, he would never eat that again. He he would try to find the the foods that, that he could be most productive and so he would experiment. In fact, Resolution 40 says this, Resolve to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I've acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Can you imagine that? Every night laying in bed, I go, okay, let's see. What did I have for breakfast? What did I have for lunch? What did I have for snack? What did I have for dessert? Right? Just evaluating everything he put in his mouth that day, whether he ate or drank, just, just to see... Was that, was that a good steward? Was I a good steward of my body? Was, did I honor the Lord in that? Is there any way I can improve in that? And, and I think that resolution, every night I'm going to ask myself, did I do the very best I could? It seems to be a very literal and practical application of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31. The verse we read at the beginning, whether then you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, we think about glorifying God in the big things of life, right? Well, I want to glorify God in, in, in you know, who I marry, and I want to glorify God in my career, and I want to glorify... But what about the little menial things you don't even think about on a daily basis? Eating and drinking is just like, oh, that's eating and drinking. We don't even think about that. We just do that. And Paul's saying, hey, no, you need to care about glorifying God with even the littlest inconsequential things in your day-to-day life. I think 1 Corinthians 10, 13, or excuse me, 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do all to the glory of God, that would be an appropriate life verse for Jonathan Edwards. I'm not saying it was. I'm just saying that would serve well as a, a life verse for Jonathan Edwards. Because for him, the essence of the Christian life was living for God's glory. Have you ever thought about that? Well, what is the essence of the Christian life? It's living for the glory of God. And by the way, the number one way you glorify God is receiving, repenting of your sin and receiving His Son, Jesus Christ. Getting saved, that's the number one way you, you glorify God. And so at the outset of, of his Christian life, Edward's purpose to, to live in such a way that God would get the most glory possible from his life. He was was fully convinced that the best Christian was the one who glorified God the most. Listen to this resolution, resolution 63. This is fascinating. 
on the supposition that there never was to be but one individual in the world at any one time who was properly a complete Christian. In other words, there never has been and there never will be a perfect Christian, a a, a properly a complete Christian, a perfect Christian, resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. In other words, I know there's no perfect Christian. There never has been, never will be. But you know what? I resolve to be that perfect Christian. I, I resolve to, 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 to live my life in such a way that I would be the best Christian alive in my generation. That's compelling. In other words, that was his goal, was to be the best Christian alive at the time. And the way he strived to be that was to maintain a single-minded, wholehearted focus on the goal of glorifying God in everything he said and did. We've all heard the expression, soli deo gloria. One of the five solas of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, simply means glory to God alone. Lawson, in his biography of Edwards, says that Edwards lived with this one driving passion, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. His master purpose in all things, his overarching aim in all of life, was to bring honor and majesty to the name of God. He desired to exalt the greatness of God with every breath he drew and with every step he took. Every thought, every attitude, every choice, and every undertaking must be for the glory of God. And so practically speaking, what that means is that Edwards evaluated everything in his life in light of God's glory. I mean, it may have been that he actually asked himself the question in every situation, in every decision, will this glorify God? Or what will glorify God the most? Because sometimes the decision isn't between right and wrong, it's between what's good and what's best, or what's permissible and what's what's allowable and what's, what's most honoring to the Lord. I find that the conversations we have with our kids these days are not so much between that's right and wrong, that will dishonor God and that will honor God. Those are easy decisions. The hard decisions are, you know, well, really, is it, does it really matter that much? I mean, yeah, it's allowable, it's permissible. You could do that and not necessarily dishonor the Lord. But that's not the question. What will glorify God the most? What will bring Him the most glory? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Can you imagine how different your life would be if you resolved to ask yourself this question before you did anything or said anything or watched anything or listened to anything or went somewhere or ate something or spent time with someone? Ask yourself the question, will this glorify God? Or what will glorify the most? What will will bring God the most glory? We've got to come up with some WWGG or something. I don't know what it is. WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? That was a big thing years ago. Everyone wore bracelets. Hey, we ask yourself, what would Jesus do? It's interesting, the story about that. Charles Sheldon was a congregationalist minister back in Topeka, Kansas. This was back in the 1800s, and he challenged his congregation to ask them the question. I don't, I don't know if it was for the story I heard. It was for maybe the next month or so or the next year. Let's ask 
that question before we do anything, what would Jesus do? And, and that was a way he challenged his congregation to live like Christ. Unfortunately, he ended up leading them down the road of a social gospel in the end. But a great question to ask, right? What if we were to commit as a congregation to say, hey, you know, this next week, this next month, right, to the end of the year, we're going to ask ourselves the question every day before we do anything, what will this glorify God? Or what will bring God the most glory? That could have a radical impact in your life, in your family, in this church, in this community. See, when glorifying God becomes the consuming passion of your life, it, it, it will influence every part of your life. Who you marry, what school you attend, how you invest your money, what job you take, what ministry you pursue, what movies you watch, what clothes you wear, and on and on and on it goes. And I guess we don't realize this, that the glory of God relates to every area of our lives. He is honored or dishonored by everything we do or don't do, or say or don't say. And I think oftentimes as Christians, we, we're guilty of what, what's called compartmentalizing our lives. There's, there's Sunday morning, here we are, we're in a little Sunday morning compartment right now, and then there's the rest of the week. There's, there's Sunday morning, and then there's the rest of the week. And so I'm in my little Sunday morning compartment right now, and I want to make sure I glorify God in all that I do today, Sunday. Lord's Day, Lord's House. Oh, and then now I am take my suit off and I go to work and I live my life and I play golf and I do this. And See, what we do on Sunday, unfortunately, oftentimes has no connection with what we do the other days of the week. We're, we're prone to make a distinction between what's called the sacred and the secular. The sacred are things like reading the Bible and praying and, and going to church and the secular is going to work and playing tennis or going to the mall or mowing your grass or watching a movie. Well, listen, God does not make any distinction between sacred things and secular things because in God's eyes, they're all the same. It's life. And so we need to do everything to the glory of God, whether it's selling a an automotive part or fixing an engine or bidding a job or signing a contract or diagnosing a, a patient's problem, prescribing medicine, digging a ditch, building a house, teaching a class, driving a truck, trading a stock, feeding the animals, plowing a field, flying an airplane, drilling for oil, wrapping an athlete's ankle, caring for a sick child, counseling a needy person, serving the internet designing a piece of jewelry, waiting on tables, arresting a criminal, changing a dirty diaper, making dinner, doing your homework, watching TV, going to the movies, listening to music, reading a book, looking at a magazine, shopping at the mall, teeing off, catching a bass, riding a horse. Have I got you yet? I'm trying to think of something for everybody, right? It's whatever you do. Whatever you do, that's what the Bible says. Whatever you do. What, what does whatever mean? You know what it means in the Greek? Whatever. Okay? Everything. Whatever you do. Everything you do. Do it for the glory of God. And so glorifying God must be the overarching purpose, the all-consuming passion, the never-ending pursuit of all of our lives. 
But we must never forget that we cannot glorify God on our own. We cannot do it in our own strength. Sheer willpower is not enough. I'm not trying to, to, to stir you all up this morning to walk out here and go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grit my teeth and I'm going to go glorify God in my life. Everything is... No, you're going to fall flat on your face. And that's one of the reasons why I love Jonathan Edwards. Because for all his passion for the glory of God, I mean, that was the theme of his life, was the glory of God. For all his passion for the, God, for the glory of God, he, he knew that no matter how resolved or determined he was to glorify God, in order to keep those 70 resolutions that he made, he would have to rely solely on the grace of God through the enabling power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. In fact, he says that essentially in the preamble. He actually wrote a preamble to his resolutions acknowledging his humble dependence upon God in the pursuit of God's glory. He wrote this, quote, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So you can write resolutions all day long. You can write 170 resolutions, right? Outdo Edwards by 100. But, but without God's help, it's all for naught. The question is, which one of us, with God's help, and for Christ's sake, will strive to be the most complete Christian alive today? How's that for a challenge from the life of a man named Jonathan Edwards? That we would say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit, I'm going to resolve to be the best Christian alive on planet Earth in 2015. Wow. I trust that Jonathan Edwards' life will motivate us toward that end, but more importantly, that Jesus Christ will serve as our motive, our model, and our means, as He is the only one Whoever glorified God completely, perfectly in, in every area of his life. He's the only one. And ultimately, we need to strive according to his power, Christ's power in us in order to reflect his life, which perfectly reflected the glory of God. We've learned in the Gospel of John, right? Jesus said, I glorified the Father. I, I've glorified him perfectly. We need to follow his example. I'll close with this. John MacArthur wrote a very helpful book years ago called The Ultimate Priority. And it's about worship. It's about glorifying God. Listen to what he said. I think this is profound. He said, when we purpose to devote our lives to God's glory, we cannot possibly seek our own glory. Isn't that what it's all about? It's either you can either glorify God with your life or glorify yourself with your life. There's nothing in between. So when we devote our lives to God's glory, you cannot possibly seek your own glory. 
Devoting our lives to God's glory means sacrificing self. It means we prefer God above all else. The true worshiper does not think about how much is going to help him, how much money he's going to get, how much success he will realize, how much fame he will have, how many friends he can garner, how spiritual he may appear to others, and so on and so on. The pursuit of the glory of God is a purely selfless, lonely pursuit. The one who has committed his life to the glory of God is consumed with zeal, not for his own reputation or self-image, but for the glory and majesty of Almighty God to whom he has devoted his, his whole being to worship. That is the only kind of life that is acceptable to God. Let's pray. Father, we are both encouraged and challenged as we consider this example of Jonathan Edwards this morning and we agree with him in that throughout church history you raise up powerful preachers who teach us your word and at the same time powerful examples who show us how to live it out how to put it into practice in our lives and Lord there's a lot for us to learn from this man Jonathan Edwards and where we can say based on your word that we should follow him as he followed Christ and Lord ultimately it's Christ who we desire to be like and we know that he his ultimate passion his ultimate goal was to bring you honor and glory even if it meant having to die on a cross and to become sin for us he was willing to do that so that you would be honored and glorified through our lives. And so I pray this morning you would just stir our hearts, Father, give us a passion to whatever we do, no matter how big or how small, whether it's on Sunday morning or Thursday afternoon, that we would do everything for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.